Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. September is recognized as National Pain Awareness Month. Millions of Americans don't need a special month designated for pain. They are well aware of it on a regular basis. In fact, pain is the number one reason people go to the doctor or seek some type of health care. Pain affects more Americans than diabetes, heart disease, and cancer combined. Focusing attention on pain and treatment for pain is especially timely now when we are going through an opioid drug crisis that includes painkillers. Joining us on today's program is Dr. Malik Momin, who is medical director and founder of Susquehanna Valley Pain Management. Dr. Momin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us is Dr. Norman Heisen, who is certified in pain management. Dr. Heisen, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Can I get you to move over a little bit? I can't see sure. you there. there Thanks. All I heard was a voice coming out of the, the, <laughs> the side there. I'm used to that. But by the way, if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. As I was researching this show, and I always start off by trying to look for a definition, you know, looking for some of the basics of what we're talking mm-hmm. about. And as I was researching pain, and pain management, one of the things I realized very early on is that they're, it's kind of hard to define. It's one of those things that uh, people say, oh, I know it when I feel it, but get them to define it, and it's not the easiest thing. Dr. Moment, how would you define pain? Well, actually, pain, man, pain is a, the definition of pain is very simple. Um, I, um, it is any... Uh, noxious, unpleasant sensation that a person feels. It becomes chronic when it has been there for a long period of time. Um, various um, organizations have come up with more de- more details, but generally speaking, uh, it has to do with that. A noxious uh, sensation, an unpleasant, noxi- noxious sensation that has been, has is present, um, for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the terms that uh, you used there right away, and it's something we're going to be talking about throughout the program, you said you talked about chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, is that what uh, the two of you, the patients that you see, do you see people most often for chronic pain or acute pain? We, we see more acute pain. We, of course, our patient population is very varied. We have very young people, middle-aged and very old. Um, typically, you know, acute pain is, um, happens typically from an injury. Um, probably the most common would be a herniated disc. Um, and that probably comprises at least 60% of our patients. So back, back pain. Back, back, back or neck pain uh, with radicular symptoms, meaning arm or leg symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, uh, these things happen very quickly. Um, they're identified either by their primary care physician or an orthopedic or neurosurgeon uh, who immediately, uh, typically, either puts them into therapy or sends them for an injection or the combination of both. Typically, uh, also, uh, they'll do diagnostic testing, an X-ray and an MRI, to really kind of ascertain uh, the severity of the problem. And that's usually what dictates uh, what type of treatment options and plan you should have. You know, I think that uh, some of these definitions are pretty obvious, but just want to point them out to people so that uh, they, they know what we're talking about. But acute pain, what is the time frame for acute pain and the time frame for chronic pain? You know, there isn't any specific time period as such, but when... Um 
when pain persists for a prolonged period of time, well beyond the duration of any pathology that could be causing that pain, uh, then we start to call it, uh, uh, a, a, it, go, it gets into the chronic phase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Usually six, you know, you, you would typically expect any kind of acute event to have resolution in typically that three to six month time frame, usually, you know, or even sooner, hopefully. But once it starts to get to six months and beyond, you really begin to wonder, is this something that's going to really uh, completely normalize on its own? Um, So six months plus is when somebody has a pretty consistent pain for that time period, um, you really begin to worry if this is going to be a lifelong problem. And typically the efficacy of all the treatments goes down uh, with time. Uh, When we can see a patient early on um, and try to uh, control and perhaps reduce the pain and maybe eliminate the pain, whether it's by uh, therapy, injections, medications, or uh, surgery, um, it really breaks that pain cycle. Um, And that is so key because the nervous system is very, very complicated. There's a phenomenon called a wind-up where Um, there's a change in the chemistry and uh, the neurotransmissions in the brain and the chemistry of the brain and the nerve endings that if you don't control that pain, you actually have remodeling of the nervous system. Hmm. And that becomes much, much more difficult to treat. And typically when when the pain isn't addressed right away, these patients are set up for chronic pain. And that becomes probably the most difficult patient to treat. So the pain actually changes your body. Yeah. It changes your nervous system. Correct. Um, uh, It's a plasticity kind of thing. And um, uh, once that happens, then it um, also then affects um, um, psychologically the individual. And they start to develop pain behaviors and uh, pain becomes a part of their life. And so it's much more difficult then to, to get rid of. So um, uh, the sooner, as, as uh, Norm said, the sooner you treat uh, the earliest early onset uh, pain, get rid of it, uh, the more likely you're going to will be successful. All right, pain behaviors. What are pain behaviors? Well, when when uh, a person has had pain for a long time, it starts affecting their life in in general. Uh, the, it affects their um, their family life. Pe- family members will uh, try to um, be sympathetic and 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 uh, provide uh, help and say, "Why you know is so uh, miss uh, my brother, father, whoever it is, is behaving this way, and what can we do to help them?" And so, sympathy plays a role. Um, uh, work-related issues, patients who have pain may not perform as well as mm-hmm. they are expected to, and then they can start having problems. So in many ways, and pain then, rules your life. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I said it's September 1st, and it's National Pain Awareness Month. I mean, how do we get to a point where, uh, you know, the treatment of pain gets its own month, that uh, we've designated a time where we have to make people aware of pain. What has happened? Well, I I think there's been a lot more um, interest and um, screening for pain. 
I can remember it was about 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, the September pain month began in 2001. It was really at that time or a few years after that where it was stressed that pain was the fifth vital sign along with temperature, heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory rate that, you know, you'd go to a hospital or your, or your, your physician and you would take the vital signs, but they would never ask you what was the pain and it was always overlooked. And many times, uh, you know, the thing that people really are concerned about and rules their life many times is more their pain and the things that they can and can't do as opposed to, you know, their blood pressure. Or th there are certain things that those vital signs show that you don't even feel, um, but people will always tell you about their pain. And it was being so ignored for so long um, because there was really no way to truly detect it unless you really asked the person. I mean, you could see somebody maybe limping or walking funny, or you could do a physical exam, see that they might have some numbness or weakness in a body part. But unless you really address it or ask them, sometimes people um, won't really tell you. And then on the flip side, there are people that will tell you immediately about their pain. So I think it was being overlooked for so long. And that is really what could set up the chronicity of pain. You know, if you go to your your providers and nobody really asked whether you had pain and people just said, well, I guess this is something I have to live with. I've always had pain. It was overlooked. So it became such a point of emphasis at about in the early 2000s. Um, and it was even included in a lot of the uh, paperwork that you would see either at the hospital or the family physician. Mm. So that was a that was a dramatic shift. You know, now that, now that you mention it, and I'm just thinking about my own personal situation. Uh, more often, going to m my family physician and with a, a, a pain. Uh, more often, I I'm ask. Scale of one to ten, where, where's your pain? I mean, now I, I remember thinking when it, the first time I was asked that, it's not exactly the most scientific method, but is that something that you still use today? Sure, we we have that pain scale. Uh, also, we have uh, sometimes posters that will show faces, you know, and that's what they use more for infants, uh, you know, a smiley face, a sad face, a crying face, because uh, mm -hmm. sometimes people don't, can't really articulate a number, and sometimes if you see a face. Or, or an image, they're able to associate their pain a little bit better with that. You know, there are so many, as we, we talk about so many different conditions, illnesses, diseases on this program, where uh, we don't have a blood test, for example, or, you know, some kind of diagnos diagnostic uh, test, gnostic test that uh, can say, oh, it's definitely this. Uh, and and pain would seem to be one of those things, but you, you know you mentioned uh, that most of your patients that come to you have lower back pain or uh, you know neck pain mm -hmm. uh, from a, a disc. Uh, but what about children? I mean, I would imagine that I mean, communication would seem to be one of the keys in you know the the, the patient telling you uh, the the doctor uh, how bad the pain is, where it is idea of what's causing it, that kind of thing. But in children, I imagine that must be uh, kind of difficult, Dr. Moma. Yeah, um, you know, it's always difficult to treat children um, because of the communications uh, problems um, uh, with children. Um, so in, when it comes to pain management, there are um, some tools that are there. Uh, uh, there is a pain scale that Norm mentioned, um, which involves uh, faces, the mm -hmm. faces scale, I think it's called. 
And so depending on the age of the, the child, you know, if they're, um, say, a toddler, they can actually recognize faces with a smiley face or a frowning face, that kind of thing. And so there's a scale that's available for use for children of that age. So there are various tools, but it is a little bit more difficult in assessing children with pain than it is definitely with adults, of course. Now, I said about uh, communication being key. Is that accurate, that communication with a patient is uh, one of the most important parts of this? Sure, yeah. Uh, Whether they're adults or children, you know, um, a a good assessment of their pain, what type of pain, where it is. Um, Since many chronic pain situations do not have any specific diagnostics tests that you can do. So it's mostly a clinical uh, diagnosis. So communications is very important. Um, uh, Character of the pain, where it is located, uh, those kind of things can give us a a good clue as to what it is that the patient is suffering from and so the treatments can be tailored to what they need. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing pain and pain management during September, which is National Pain Awareness Month. Our guest today, Dr. Malik Momin, is medical director and founder of Susquehanna Valley Pain Management, and Dr. Norman Heisen. See, I told you I was going. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's right? Okay. That's perfect. Like Hawaii, he told me. Heisen yeah. uh, <laughs> suffered a certified in pain management. I know you have questions out there about pain. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a message or a question on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Now, we can't do diagnosis on the air. I mention mm-hmm. this almost every time we have a medical professional on. But but uh, if you have a specific question about some pain you've been suffering, someone you know, uh, give us a call. Ask a question. Uh, won't diagnose, us, uh, diagnose it on the air, but uh, can give some uh, parameters. In fact, I got one from Tracy in Lebanon County. Uh, said that her 17-year-old son was diagnosed with diabetes. Yeah. He was diagnosed when he was 17. I guess he's a little bit older now. Uh, but he has pain in his hands and his feet. Right. Give me an idea of what can cause that. Neuropathy. Um, Diabetic neuropathy. Um, Unfortunately, diabetes attacks the small vessels um, that that feed the the, uh, most uh, distal nerve endings. And so it's really a a matter of the uh, sugar actually uh, causing damage to the small blood vessels, which in turn feed the most um, distal uh, nerve, and so you start to get numbing, tingling, and damage to the nerve endings in your hands and your feet. Uh, typically, it starts first in your feet, and then secondarily to in your hands because the blood supply is typically uh, more robust in your upper extremities, so it's closer to your heart than your legs. So typically, people start to get numb. He, I, I don't, we don't know this uh, person, but probably they started getting numbing and tingling in their feet first, and then shortly thereafter started to notice numbing and tingling in their hands, and they have uh, neuropathy for that more than likely they either got a nerve biopsy or did a nerve conduction study just to see whether they did have a nerve damage and probably they do if that's not the case the only other possibility could be a vascular issue but they, but this person with diabetes more more than likely has diabetic neuropathy all right so that's how's that treated typically with medications um or uh initially anyway uh tight control of their sugar since um it is um 
uh, uncontrolled um, blood glucose that that contributes to the toxicity to the peripheral nerves that causes this uh, mm-hmm. this uh, this uh, problem. Uh, sugar tight sugar control is very important. So the patient should really um, uh, follow up with their primary care physicians uh, regularly in terms of blood sugar control. Uh, beyond that, as far as the pain itself, there are many different medications. The good news is that um, in the last few years, there have been many different medications that have come out that are helpful in this type of condition. Um, anticonvulsant drugs such as uh, gabapentin, Lyrica, those drugs have been actually marketed and actually approved by the FDA for specifically this diagnosis. Anything over the counter? Uh, not so much. I mean, I think that there are some topical um, creams and such that uh, are available over the counter. Capsaicin is a, uh, a, a cream. Uh, it's actually a um, substance that's derived from peppers, cayenne peppers, and, uh, and, and, and a chemical that comes from that, the peppers that's in the cream, which you can get over the counter that you can apply to the, the affected areas which uh, tends to have sort of a deadening effect on mm-hmm. the peripheral nerves that are hyperactive. You know, something you, you mentioned, though, you said pain or numbness. Mm-hmm. Is numbness pain? Because I think we've all experienced that where something is numb, right. but we wouldn't say that it's painful. Right. You can have numbness without pain, and you can have numbness with pain. Um, there is more than there are several nerve uh, fibers that control different feelings. We have C fibers which control pain. We have uh, delta fibers and uh, gamma fibers that that control light touch and pain, as well as sensation. So it really is dependent on which fibers are specifically damaged. So you can have numbness without pain or with pain. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's take a phone call from Ann in Lancaster. Ann, you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call, Scott. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Hi, everyone. Um, okay, so I am um, um, somebody who suffers from both migraines and pretty severe, although not all the time, phantom pain from an amputation of my leg from mm-hmm. cancer. Sure. So um, just happened to have had about that a couple nights ago. Um, and it is so bad, I literally do scream out loud. And it wakes me from my sleep. So the migraines, I just want to mention, I've been to a neurologist and a general internist and a Chinese practitioner that put injections right in my limb, physical therapy. Um, and I am on anticonvulsants. I eat a chemical-free diet, mostly organic. What I wanted to know is next month, I'm going to Drexel mm-hmm. for their chronic regional pain disorder program. Um, because I've seemed to have exhausted pretty much everything. And I'd like to know if your guests are at all familiar with that and could possibly comment on it. Thanks for my call. Okay, thank you very much. Well, um, there, there are two different issues. First is the migraines, you know. Um, and the migraines, there's multiple causes for that. It could be a, a mechanical issue. Um, when you say mechanical issue, mechanical. You it, it, it could be an issue in the cervical spine that's causing her headaches. It could be a chemical issue, uh, whether there's a sensitivity to foods or hormonal imbalance. Uh, the headaches, headaches are caused by multiple things. Um, uh, you know, uh, again, a structural issue, a biochemical issue. 
Um, and, and that, there are many treatment options still. I, I don't know if this uh, particular person has tried Botox. Botox injections have been very, very effective, too, mm -hmm. and, and they've been used quite a bit. The other, the limb issue, uh, the amputation issue, and the phantom pain it, it, it is a more central problem. And, and like uh, Dr. Moman and I were just, were just kind of looking at each other's notes. Uh, yeah, it could be a chronic regional pain syndrome that she has uh, from the initial amputation. Um, and you know, that really, that surprises a lot of people when you say phantom pain. Right. And it, people almost sound, when you talk to people about it, they almost think it's it's a myth. Right. Like it doesn't happen. But you, you've heard that. I mean, it's a real thing, right? Yeah, that it you, is. F even though you do not have that leg there, that uh, They can limb, say they feel. They still feel the pain. They feel pain in their foot, and their foot isn't there. Um, because the actual um fibers that control the foot and, and, and where you interpret it is in the, in the central nervous system, in the spinal cord, and in the brain. Mm -hmm. And that has not been affected mm. or, or, or damaged. Other, th other thing she mentioned was uh, she's going to Drexel for this chronic regional pain syndrome mm -hmm. um, evaluation. That is uh, another con dif distinct condition, different than phantom limb pain. Um, chronic regional pain syndrome is it classically occurs in people who have some type of uh, peripheral injury, like a crush injury, and actually was first uh, uh, described many years ago in, during the Civil War, apparently, when, when uh, the soldiers uh, incurred certain uh, horrendous uh, injuries to their extremities. And, of course, at that time, they didn't know what it was, but the extremity would become swollen and sore, and, and the pain would be just off the charts, essentially. And uh, but basically, what we feel it is that it has something to do with the sympathetic nervous system in the body, uh, where after an injury, these nerve endings become hyperactive and 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 go into this cycle of where hyperactivity and sometimes um, uh, uh, hypoactivity, and uh, and circulation is also affected. Eventually, in the end stages of chronic regional pain syndrome. You start developing atrophy and 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 um, uh, loose, uh, and basically you lose the use of the the extremity. Um, luckily, again, some of the new drugs that have come around in the last few years, the anticonvulsants, the ones that I just mentioned, gabapentin and neurontin, have been very effective in managing these people. In the past, about ten years ago, we used to do primarily series of sympathetic nerve blocks. And that seemed to help some people, but uh, really didn't get them uh, 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 cured, let's say. So they ended up having to have these kind of nerve blocks regularly. Nowadays, we see few and few patients who need these kind of injections. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Um, the two of you deal with pain. I mean, that's, that's your specialty. Uh, when does a patient go from their family phys physician or some other type of specialist to see one of you, to, to, to manage pain? Well, there, you know, there really are two different types of conditions that we really see. We see the acute pain like we were talking before, and then the more chronic pain. Um, and the chronic pain would be 
very similar to what the uh, the lady who just called in would have. Um, there are other conditions uh, like post-herpetic neuralgia after a shingles attack, and it doesn't go away. Yeah, the Charlie um, Bradshaw commercials. Like, right, right, exactly. <laughs> Don't show me that. Right, and, and, and then we have other things that cause chronic pain, uh, significant uh, immune conditions, significant rheumatologic conditions. And, and for those patients, it's always a little bit more difficult. Typically, in those patients, it's more of a multidisciplinary approach where we're just a component of the team. Those particular patients typically require other physicians, therapists, and other modalities, um, traditional and non-traditional, just like, uh, and I shouldn't say acupuncture is traditional in, in most of the world, uh, like the lady did acupuncture, physical therapy, chiropractic, massage. Um, all of these are very viable uh, treatment options for a patient who has more of a chronic comprehensive problem in combination with medication management and even sometimes psychological counseling, too. Well, let me bring that in because we have a caller who has a question about that. Uh, Peter is in Mechanicsburg. Peter, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Um, I was wondering uh, if uh, it would be good for your guests to talk about uh, Dr. John Sarno. I'm sure he's retired at this point, but he was clinical pain psychologist at Columbia Presbyterian for many years. Uh, wrote several best-selling books, New York Times best-selling books on back pain. Mm-hmm. And since back pain seems to be an epidemic these days, uh, as, as your one guest commented. So, um, so basically what Dr. Sarno was writing about was the psychological, uh, the aspects of, of the psychology on pain, yeah. correct? Yes. Okay. Correct. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, Dr. Heisen, you just brought that up, uh, psychology of pain. Sure. W- what are we talking about? Well, I think what happens is, too, once you start to experience pain and it becomes a constant uh, issue, you start to have all of the symptoms associated with chronic pain, sleep disturbance, appetite problems, loss of energy, libido, concentration impairment. Um, and, and so it becomes more than just a physical problem. It becomes also a psychological problem. And, uh, you know, to counteract that, you know, just doing, um, taking medications or getting procedures isn't really going to remedy that. Uh, probably, and it's always been shown that exercise, physical therapy, uh, movement are all things, uh, meditation, all of these things are going to help not only your mood, but also your physical abilities and your cognitive abilities. So I think what Dr. Sarno, and and I remember um, uh, being familiar with this book many years ago when he he wrote it, um, but it it was more focusing not just on um, like what we do, interventional pain management, but more so on the comprehensive approach to patients. Mm -hmm. We have a few emails here. Uh, Brian and Marietta ask, he says, I've had intermittent abdominal pain, diverticulitis, colitis, IBS for years. A problem I keep having, though, is the long lead time to see specialists. It can be weeks until an appointment opens up, by which time the condition is no longer acute and difficult to identify, even though it's recurrent. What's the best way to deal with the bureaucracy? You can see where this is a real problem. You have acute pain. By the time you get to uh, the doctor, it's no longer there. Well, for him, I think his is more of a GI issue. I mean, yeah. I, I mean that those particular issues are purely handled by a gastroenterologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, but uh, be, but I think that as with any 
I mean, uh, he should have a good relationship with his uh, gastroenterologist where um, he can be seen in a timely manner when he has the problem. But, but, but he's trying. He's trying to get, <laughs> he can't get through the bureaucracy. He can't get an appointment. Right. Yeah. I mean, what happens in that, that case, and many times we know sure. what happens is people end up going to the emergency room. Correct. ER, yes. And then we end up going through the whole, this is why it costs so much, and sure. that kind of thing. No advice on, on how he can, uh, <laughs> when, he, when he's in uh, this pain? You know, going to, you know, an urgent care or even the ER, uh, sometimes you really probably doesn't get down to what that patient needs. Uh, more than likely, they'll just give him something uh, to tie him over for, the, for that evening, send him home, and they'll tell him, follow up with your family physician, follow up with your gastroenterologist. Um, unfortunately, um, access to the physicians uh, at, at, at sometimes is very, very difficult because we do have full schedules. Mm -hmm. uh, we do try to make every... Uh, a good, good effort, even uh, staying extra, giving up time, seeing extra patients to try to get our patients in. Um, but there is really no easy answer. I know when we're patients, uh, sometimes that situation happens too, that we can't get to a certain specialist when we need them. But as I was saying, for a gentleman with the specific problem that he has, mm -hmm. Crohn's, um, he should really have a good specialist in this case, gastroenterologist who is familiar with him. A good relationship with the physician will get you in faster. Mm -hmm. So when he has these uh, flare-ups, um, you know, um, he, hopefully they can address them quickly for him. So I, I would say that, you know, that would be his best bet is to have a good relationship with and, and be, be comfortable with a particular provider. Okay. I, I can guess he's probably not satisfied with that answer, but I know the reality of yeah. this is what we're dealing with today. Larry uh, writes in our Facebook page, says, I went to the doctor for pain in my hand. Doctor told me to take two a leave a day and wear a brace. Is just throwing pain medicine at the problem a good idea? Now, this is so timely. His question is so timely sure. because, as I mentioned in our introduction, and everyone is aware of this, we are going through this opioid drug crisis right mm -hmm. now in this state and across the country where so many people have started with painkillers for legitimate pain. Those prescriptions run out. They no longer can get the prescriptions. Many of those people have turned to heroin. Yeah. So getting back to Larry's question, throwing drug or pain medicine at the problem, a good idea. When do you decide that medication is the best treatment rather than, and especially medication that can be addictive mm -hmm. or someone can become dependent. How do you decide? That's a tough question. It's a tough question. Um, because it also depends on uh, the patient, what they're going through. Like somebody who has like kidney stones, I mean like an oh, acute event. I've never had that, but I understand it is just unbelievable pain. It's not good. I've had them. <laughs> um, it, 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 for, for an acute event like that, I mean the pain medications are really uh, more geared to for a short period of time. It should not be something... Um, and there are always extending circumstances like cancer and those kind of things, but it really shouldn't be the first thought uh, unless, and again, for a short acute event, not long acting um, or a long period of time. 
um, for this situation, this particular gentleman, um, giving him anti-inflammatories and giving him a wrist splint, I, I, I would assume that the person thought he might have had a strain, a sprain, um, and was just hoping that, uh, you know, within two weeks or so, 10 days to two weeks, that that joint problem, that hand problem would resolve. Mm -hmm. If not, you should always try to find out why this is happening. You know, just throwing medications at people uh, without really trying to find out why he's having this. I don't know if he had an x-ray. There, there, there are so many things in that situation. You always want to have the diagnosis uh, because once you have a diagnosis, then you have a, really a much more comprehensive and thought-out treatment plan. I'm, I'm sure but I'm, uh, that throwing medication at the problem is not a term you use very often, is Correct. it? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> right. I joke, of course. Sure. Wayne says, the guest mentioned pain changing the nerves. Does it change the nerves in other areas of the body not afflicted by the initial pain? Interestingly enough, it can. Yep. Uh, the way the body is wired with the nervous system, um, they, there are instances, conditions where... Um, um, the, the the problem in one extremity eventually can actually um, spread to other parts of the body. A classic example of this is uh, we mentioned chronic regional pain syndrome, which was formerly referred to as reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which many times occurs in an injured limb uh, and if left untreated frequently will actually uh, tr uh, the same kind of symptoms will then start occurring in the non-injured extremity. Um, and, um, and the same kind of pain uh, 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 presentation, uh, the characteristic of the pain and that kind of thing. And that's all because of the, the connections, the neural connections that are present. So that, that was a very common thing. Uh, you know, we actually saw some rain this morning. A little mm -hmm. bit different from the, the weather of the past few weeks. Mm -hmm. And we've heard people say that uh, their arthritis or some other type of pain is worse during certain weather conditions. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, some people will argue, but I've also heard that some people uh, have said that um, it's related to the barometric pressure. Whenever it rains, you have a low barometric pressure. And so any pressure within... Uh, your body or the joint, uh, you'll feel more pressure build within the joints. Uh, if it's a high-pressure system, there's more pressure on the outside of your body, so any kind of pressure within the joints is uh, less painful. So they're not imagining it. No. Mm -hmm. you no. Know, interestingly enough, I've had ACL surgery, and whenever it rains, I, I can feel where the screw is right in my tibia. Really? Yeah. I feel I can usually detect when it's going to rain. Just do, do you laugh when he says that? Well, it could be that. It makes sense, certainly. <laughs> uh, you know, it, the, the, it, it makes sense, you know, uh, pressure. But it could be possibly moisture, humidity-related uh, okay. um, also. That is always so interesting because some people, we have people that come in, they tell us, I feel better when it's moist out, and regardless of the temperature, then we have other people that tell us just the opposite. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it is really hard to explain why that is, but I remember, uh, I, I think it was one professor during residency was kind of talking about that, the pressure, and I, you know, I, I don't think he had any studies to back it up, but it was just anecdotal that he kind of said that. <laughs> mm -hmm. We have uh, a question here from Manuel, says, I suffer from chronic transformental 
Payne, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and he gives with the locations L4, L5, and L5S1. I have chronic pain due to 12 degree, and I'm not, I, socia, what is Scoliosis. It? Scoliosis, Scoliosis, yes, yeah. rib juncture. When I go to bed, I have pain, but always wake up uh, with the Lebex. <laughs> Okay. Boy, he really knows his... He must carry his file around. Yeah. Lumbosacral pain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I'm trying hard to avoid fusion right. uh, or surgery. Any holistic or homeopathic suggestions? Do you deal in those kind of things? We do, yes. Um, uh, it sounds to me like this gentleman has a severe scoliosis, yeah. thoracolumbar junction, yeah. and um, um, not sure his age and that kind of thing. But um, at certain, uh, if he's a younger individual, might have been considered for surgical correction, which would involve, um, you know, correction of the curvature itself. But if he's a more advanced age, you know, that's not an option. Okay. So um, that th that curvature can create some, you know, pinching of the nerve roots and uh, radicular symptoms, and that's what he may be suffering. So he has to do whatever he has he can to minimize that, you know, physical therapies, exercises, even bracing might be beneficial, uh, and uh, intermittent bracing. I, one of you mentioned diet and exercise earlier, and, mm -hmm. you know, so many things to maintain a healthy lifestyle. Uh, obviously, diet and, and exercise have a lot to do with it, but what does diet have to do with pain? Well, you want to have, uh, a, if possible, uh, take things that reduce inflammation. Fish oil is one in particular. Turmeric. Mm -hmm. There's there's certain holistic uh, medic. There's certain uh, um, herbs and, and foods that can reduce inflammation, um, and that's been a, a more of a trend that people are really looking um, at their diet more, uh, looking for sensitivities that can cause inflammation, um, like gluten. Gluten's been a big uh, topic in the last few years that people have gluten sensitivities, which create inflammation. So I would say uh, a diet that is uh, high in uh, omega-3s, uh, eating fish, um, also taking uh, vitamin E, mm -hmm. uh, as well as fish oil, turmeric, those things. Reduction. Will, garlic, and, 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 wait, excuse me? Anti-inflammatory. Anti Many of sure. these drugs have an anti-inflammatory. But besides that, it's just the quantity of food too. Right. You exactly. Know? So uh, I think that weight, uh, many times excessive weight on your body and your frame, play, plays an important role in pain. It puts stress on your joints, on your spine, your discs. Sure. Um, so um, so eating the right amount is also important. You know, um, being on a good diet, exercise. Keep your weight under control. Keep your back and core muscles strong. That unloads the disc um, and allows you to do more, and it kind of protects it protects your discs. Well, gentlemen, I've learned a lot here today, and uh, I don't even have any pain to ask you about. I'm, you, you're <laughs> telling me, Dr. Heisen, that uh, so many people ask you about uh, relatives and themselves. Sure, and sure. <laughs> I want to thank the two of you for being with us today. Dr. Malik Molman, he's the medical director and founder of Susquehanna Valley Pain Management, and Dr. Norman Heisen, who is uh, certified in pain management. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being thank with you. us today. Thanks for having us. Today's program is part of uh, WIT's Transforming Health Project. For more on treating pain, 
pain, I should say, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care. Check out WITF's Transforming Health from Policy to Personal Choices. We're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system. Online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and Wellspan Health. You're listening to WITF.org. No, you're listening to WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Labor Day weekend means Harrisburg's Capona Festival, the end of summer celebration along the Susquehanna River. And this year uh, on City Island as well, this year's events, it's a special time. It's the centennial of the Capona Festival. Joining us today to talk about Capona, Jeff Stewart. And uh, Jeff Stewart, I want to make sure I get your uh, title here, uh, Mr. Stewart, because I understand it's a little longer than just a a historian. Preservation Advisor with the Historic Harrisburg Association and Chair of the Harrisburg Parks Foundation. Jeb Stewart, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. And you got the titles correct. (laughs) Well, I have to thank Heather Wilbur, my producer, for that. And Devin Drabik, who is Director of Business Development with the City of Harrisburg. Ms. Drabik, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So it's Capona. I'm sure that uh, you and uh, so many people who live in the city of Harrisburg and actually throughout central Pennsylvania look forward to Capona every year. But what's special about Capona? Well, being the 100th celebration of Capona, we have a lot of new things planned this year, Um, as well as we'll have the traditional favorites that everyone looks forward to. But we have roughly a dozen brand new events and attractions coming this year. So it's going to be a huge celebration for three days. All right. I'm going to talk about some of those uh, different things. And I I looked down, I saw the the city's website Mm -hmm. about Capona and a crab cake eating contest? Is that new? <laughs> that is new, yes. I have to tell you, I've never heard of a crab cake <laughs> eating contest. I love crab cakes. So many people do. But someone eating them really fast, I don't know about that one. Oh, yes. That was a neat <laughs> idea, actually, by one of the vendors, Sherry's Crab Cakes, who came out and wanted to sponsor that. Thought it'd be fun. We thought it'd be a nice, unique thing to add. <laughs> I, I, I really do think it was a neat idea. I'm, I'm sure when people are out there, oh, crab cake eating contest. You know, you may be starting to trend. You know, for years to come, there will be crab cake eating contest, along with apple pie eating contest, and wings contest. There you go. <laughs> Say it started right here in exactly. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, let's, since it is the centennial, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about history. And you are uh, making, uh, Jeff, you are making history part of this. In what way? Well, uh, Scott, of course, it is the 100th anniversary. Uh, 1916 was the first year of Capona per se. There were uh, water carnivals before uh, Capona, but yeah, it was the, actually called water water carnival. Yeah, yeah they but, they really had the imagination back then. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> but what happened in 1916 was the river steps were completed and the Dock Street Dam was completed, and this was all part of the city beautiful movement improvements mm-hmm. that occurred in the early part of the 20th century. And because of that, the river uh, uh, level was raised. Uh, The steps became bleachers, if you will. Um, Before that, sewage kind of poured into the river. Before um, these municipal improvements occurred, uh, the interceptor sewer was built under the river steps to uh, intercept the sewage. You had a higher river uh, level, so it became more recreational. And because of these wonderful improvements that were completed in 1916, the powers that be uh, and really the business and uh, civic uh, organizations in the city uh, rebranded uh, the event as Capona, uh, which, of course, is a Native American uh, which term. Means, which means? Well, um, there's a uh, definition for that. Okay, you have to break it down. Uh, um, 
if I may. Um, uh, Na water. <laughs> Na is water, means be on. Po means waters, and ki means sparkling or bright. So when it's pronounced backwards, it's ki pona rather than kipona, but ki pona is really the accurate pronunciation. And, you know, the first time I heard that, I thought to myself, well, then that means, I mean, not like the, the sun or the water has changed in 200, 300 years, but in Harrisburg and so many places along the Susquehanna River, when the sh sun reflects off the water, the sparkling water, and it just makes sense that uh, it would be called Keypona. Very much so. Yeah. Exactly. So let's go back to, uh, and I'm, I'm curious when you say that the, the steps were completed mm -hmm. and were bleachers, were they done? I've often wondered about that because they're so long. Uh, were they finished that way, planned that way as bleachers or just as steps? They became bleachers. Okay, um, okay. It was an aesthetic improvement, of course, to disguise the interceptor sewer. So you had a blend of public works and aesthetics uh, together. Um, they became bleachers. Uh, whether or not they were intended to be uh, is a good question, but it was a natural, if you will, from that standpoint. And the steps themselves evolved over a period of time. Uh, they really were finished up to around Forster Street by then, and then as Riverfront Park was expanded over the years. They continued northward up to McClay Street, which is where they terminate at this point. Mm -hmm. So how are you commemorating the 100th uh, birthday or centennial this year? The, the one thing we're doing, uh, the city um, uh, asked the Historic Harrisburg Association to engage in a history walk by producing, uh, which we've done, uh, 54 uh, historic panels that will be 24 by 36 uh, in size, inches in size, that will be installed on the Walnut Street Bridge. Wow. And these panels are That's really... Nice. That sounds great. Oh, really, it's going to be cool. Um, and these panels really feature historic imagery um, of Capona starting in 1916 all the way up to last year, 2015, of course. And what we were trying to do was to get a sampling of images throughout that entire 100-year period, uh, many from 1916, 1919, 1920, and through the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, etc. So it's really uh, a really cool collection of images and primarily photography that will be uh, displayed on the bridge through these panels. And they were gonna, they'll be installed um, late tomorrow, Friday, uh, in time for uh, the first day on Saturday. Jeb, not surprisingly, uh, our audience can tell just from your voice, you weren't around for that first Capona in 1916, <laughs> but having looked through the photographs and the history, do you have a favorite? I mean, something that you looked at and said, boy, that was unusual. How did they do that? Uh, really the first year. 1916 was really cool. Um, they pulled out all the stops. You could see that it was a very enthusiastic uh, celebration. There, were, there, there was a, a tremendous amount of river activity. There were war canoes. There were houseboats. There were, there were regular canoes, uh, swimming events, and, 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 and other activity. And we have some images showing it was just uh, a flood of, of watercraft and a flood of individuals and people that, of course, are on the bleacher, bleachers and are also on the Walnut Street Bridge. What's a war canoe? Um, <laughs> good question. Uh, these are very large canoes, apparently, that were very popular at that time. And there were 12 men, I believe, in each one of those canoes. And uh, it just became a trademark um, 
craft uh, during those early years. Mm-hmm. Now, Devin, when you were talking about some of the, the new things this year, and I don't know whether this is new or not, but again, I think you've hit upon something here. Doggy Olympics and Kissing Booth. Now, the reason we put those two together, if you just said Kissing Booth, everyone an image comes to someone's mind. Yeah. But the Doggy Olympics and Kissing Booth have to go together in this case, right? They do, yes. We, we opened up Capona this year to nonprofits in the community who wanted to do side events to help us celebrate. Um, and the Susquehanna Service Dogs suggested the Doggy Olympics. And one of the things they do as a fundraiser there um, is the puppy kissing booth. So it's a kissing booth, but it's really your opportunity to play with little puppies and, and have fun. So that's a one-day event on City Island this year. Do they kiss back me? Do they lick? Oh, they do. Okay. Oh, they do. All right, good. We, <laughs> see, now, the thing is, you always tell your kids, don't kiss that dog, but we all do it. So, But I, what I'm saying is we, we found how popular dogs are and yes. puppies yes. in particular. Uh, let's see. Festival of India. Yep, that's a traditional one that we're bringing back. We've got along with the North American powwow, which yes. not related, but that's nope. a traditional yep. one. Yeah, those are those are really popular ones that we're going to have back, as well as the canoe races. Of course, doing fireworks on Sunday night, um, lots and lots of food and product vendors. So those are the the traditional things we're bringing back for people. But mm. just a couple of the new things we have gone from one live music stage to two this year. And we're also going to have a theater stage. So we're going to have some local performers um, putting on different shows for children um, as well as adults. We have an improv group coming there. Um, we have a beer garden this year, which everybody's excited that's new, about. Right? That is brand new, yep. And that's by uh, Zero Day Brewery, which is in Harrisburg. We've got an artist village, which is new. That hasn't been at Capona for many years now. Um, and then perhaps one of the most talked about things is the wire walkers we have this year. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be walking uh, on a tightrope from Riverfront Park to um, one of the pilings under the Walnut Street Bridge. And they're doing four shows a day, all three days, actually. So lots of opportunities to come out and see that. That is really cool. Mm-hmm. I've seen the great Willenda walk across Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, and it is, it is really cool. Um, okay, so the hours, uh, Saturday, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Sunday, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., but everything gets starts to get ready tomorrow, right? Correct, uh, yep. What about today? Anything going on today to get ready? We have the basic big tents going up, stages, those sorts of things, but vendors don't come in until tomorrow. All right, so you're on City Island and Riverfront Park, yes. right? Uh, what about parking? So parking, there's lots of different options. First of all, street parking's free on Sunday and Monday. So the only day people would have to pay to park on the street is Saturday. And the city is doing the uh, Pango mobile parking app code, LOVEHBG. That's L-U-V-H-B-G. If you enter that into the app, you get four hours free on the street. Um, on, you, on Saturday? On Saturday. Hey, mm-hmm. that's cool. If you want to park on City Island, it's open all three days. There's a $4 parking fee there. Um, and if you want to use one of the garages, um, we recommend the Market Square Garage in Harrisburg because that is a $10 for the whole day uh, parking rate. So lots of parking options. All right. We have a couple minutes left. Mm-hmm. Uh, Devin, make your your best pitch for someone who has never been to Capona. Although uh, most, I I would guess that most people listening to our audience have been. Probably. But uh, make your best pitch. Probably. Well, if you've come before, you're going to be amazed at all the things that are going on this year. Not only are we using all of City Island and Riverfront Park, but we're also having to extend down State Street now because we're so full. We've got that many attractions, tons of different villages, so much happening. You're not going to be able to see it all in one day. See, State Street is a, such a, a great location because of the Capitol in the background and everything. Mm-hmm. River on one side, Capitol on the other. All right, so, uh, Jeb, 
from a historian's point of view. You have 30 seconds. Make your, your case for it. <laughs> well, the, the, one thing I, the one thing I do want to mention is all the, the 54 panels that will be on the bridge, we do have uh, duplicated in a publication uh, that will be available um, so that folks can, after they see uh, the exhibit on the bridge, uh, they can pick up a copy uh, at the mayor's tent um, in Riverfront Park um, as a memento um, for the future um, th- so that they can see exactly um, those images that we've been able to create. Well, I know that uh, our audience in particular is that history is one of their favorite topics, so I'm sure that there are a lot of people who would like to take advantage of that. Jeff Stewart's Preservation Advisor with Historic Harrisburg Association, Chair of the Harrisburg Parks Foundation, and Devin Drevik, Director of Business Development with the City of Harrisburg. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank Thanks you, Scott. We're going to be talking tomorrow about international trade.